It was Christmas Eve 1800, and First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte and his wife Josephine were on their way to the opera. Napoleon was looking forward to a night away from his duties. He'd been leading France for over a year, bringing order and stability to the country after years of rebellion. But his peaceful night was not to be. As his carriage neared the opera house, there was a massive explosion. Someone had planted a bomb in a cart along Napoleon's route, but they'd missed him. When Napoleon realized he didn't have a scratch on him, he told his driver to press on to the opera and joked calmly to Josephine, those rascals wanted to blow me up. It would take more than a bomb to ruin his evening. But for all Napoleon's calm exterior, the message was clear. Someone wanted him dead. That was a problem. But Napoleon had a solution. He'd just have to make himself so powerful that he was untouchable. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season of Dictators, we're exploring the lives of leaders who conquered the world and brought empires to their knees. Today, we're continuing with part two of our three-part dive into the life of Napoleon Bonaparte. Last week, we explored Napoleon's youth and his dream to liberate Corsica. Later, Napoleon made a name for himself on the battlefield, becoming France's greatest general and eventually taking power in a coup d'etat. Today, we'll dive into Napoleon's tumultuous early reign and a series of battles that reshaped Europe. We'll also explore how these wars provoked a conflict with Russian Tsar Alexander I and threatened the entire continent. We'll head back to Paris, France, right after this. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. In November 1799, a cabal of men overthrew the leadership of the French Republic, known as the Directory, in just two days. After the bloodless coup, three men took charge of the nation as provisional consul. 
Two of them, Emmanuel Cies and Roger Ducot, were former members of the directory, while the third man was 30-year-old general Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon was France's most famous and successful general. During the War of the First Coalition, he turned the second-rate Army of Italy into a decisive force to end the war. Now, he was one of the most powerful men in France, but it wasn't enough. Napoleon wanted to rule alone, which meant eliminating CAS and Ducot. He got his chance in the weeks following the coup when a new constitution was written up. The constitution which would replace his provisional government with Sieyès and Ducot. This document called for a three-part legislature. And, like the provisional government, it also called for a three-man executive branch. These three leaders, called consuls, would reign for ten-year terms. However, the three consuls wouldn't be equal in their power. The first consul would be in charge, while the other two were more like advisors. On December 13, 1799, a committee nominated the consuls. Their selections would then be presented to the public and voted on the following February. Through political maneuvering, Napoleon made certain he was nominated as first consul, with loyal allies as second and third to replace CAS and Ducot. Napoleon was on the verge of controlling France's government, but he knew he still needed to make it legitimate through the election. To do that, he needed his brother, Lucien. Lucien Bonaparte, Napoleon's younger brother, played an integral part in overthrowing the directory. As a result, he was appointed interior minister, which meant he oversaw the impending election. Lucien completely fabricated a major portion of the vote to ensure the outcome he and Napoleon wanted. When he announced the results on February 7, 1800, a remarkable 99.95% of voters supported the Constitution and Napoleon as first consul. It seemed France now belonged to Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon knew he still needed to maintain his power by winning over the people, just as he had his soldiers in Italy. But this time, he wouldn't just rely on real reforms and concessions to various interest groups. He would also use manipulation, propaganda, and draconian control. First, he filled his cabinet with a broad spectrum of representatives, from radical left-wing Jacobins to royalists who served under King Louis XVI. In doing so, he sought to unify a country that was torn apart after years of chaos during the revolution. But he also reorganized local government to increase his control of all France's regions and restricted the free press. Next, Napoleon set out to win over the peasants. To do this, he cracked down on France's rural crime, for years, the countryside was plagued with violence by highwaymen, counter-revolutionaries, and outlaws. To get this under control, Napoleon increased patrols and gave them carte blanche to dispense justice as they saw fit. Napoleon's men became judge, jury, and executioner. And the suppression tactics worked. According to historian Andrew Roberts, 
Within three years, it was safe to travel through France again. Not even his Italian victories brought Napoleon more popularity. But while Napoleon was gaining popularity at home, he was still at war with much of Europe. By 1800, a few members of the Second Coalition, like Russia, had dropped out of the fight. But France still had to deal with two immediate threats, Austria and Britain. Napoleon decided to take on the Austrians first. He was most comfortable on the battlefield, so he decided to go back to Italy and lead the fight himself. He intended to surprise the Austrian troops by taking his army over the Alps. Only two conquerors had ever done this before, Hannibal of Carthage and Emperor Charlemagne. Just as he had when he was younger with Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, Napoleon hoped to follow in the footsteps of the greatest conquerors in history. Napoleon crossed the Alps in the spring of 1800 with over 50,000 men and heavy artillery, and he did it in just 11 days. By the end of May, Napoleon was back in Piedmont, Italy, hunting the Austrian army. But the Austrians found him first. On June 14, 1800, they launched a surprise attack on Napoleon's forces near the village of Marengo. By all accounts, the Austrians had more men and guns. They should have easily defeated the French. But luck was on Napoleon's side. Around 5 p.m., a French cannonball miraculously hit an ammunition wagon, causing a fierce explosion that stunned the Austrians. Seizing the opportunity, Napoleon's cavalry charged, and within an hour, the French had taken the battlefield. The Battle of Marengo ultimately knocked the Austrians out of the war. A few days later, both sides agreed to an armistice, and the Austrians left northern Italy. Meanwhile, Napoleon was lucky at Marengo, and he knew it. But he wasn't about to waste an opportunity for propaganda. He had bulletins published to highlight the courage of his men, while also omitting the fact that they just got lucky. His people ate it up. They held parades for Napoleon across France as he marched back to Paris. And when he arrived back in the capital on July 2nd, his power felt more secure than ever. Now, it was time for Napoleon to use the power he'd secured to really change France. One of his goals was to reform the country's legal system. Since the revolution, over 14,000 different laws had been passed, creating a confusing legal code. To rectify that, Napoleon oversaw a new code of laws written by Second Consul Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambaceres. This new French civil code was completed and submitted in January 1801. Three years later, it came to be known as the Napoleonic Code, even though Napoleon had no real hand in drafting it. But if the Napoleonic Code simplified France's laws, it did so by making them more uniformly conservative, patriarchal, and capitalistic. In particular, women's rights were virtually abolished. For example, if a man was convicted of adultery, he was slapped with a fine. 
but for the same charge, a woman could face up to two years in prison. Women also couldn't be part of legal contracts or lawsuits, or serve as witnesses in court. Beyond supporting the patriarchy, the Napoleonic Code also heavily favored employers. One egregious anti-labor law forced workers to carry an employment ledger that their employer kept and signed each day. Without it, workers could be fired and even imprisoned. These harsh rules might have been why it took three years for Napoleon's grand domestic legal reform to finally be approved. And while Napoleon battled over the Napoleonic Code at home, he still faced other major issues abroad, like the Haitian Revolution. The Haitian Revolution erupted in 1791 in the French colony of Saint-Domingue, led by Toussaint Louverture, Tens of thousands of enslaved Haitians revolted, burning down plantations and massacring their French enslavers. By 1801, the Haitian people had the upper hand over the French, which cut into trade profits. In order to finance his treasury and any future wars, Napoleon needed to squash the revolution immediately. To do so, he sent his brother-in-law, Charles Leclerc, with a force of 20,000 men. Their goal was to establish order and reinstitute slavery, which had been abolished by the rebels eight years previously. Leclerc failed miserably. The French army was ravaged by disease, and they never gained the upper hand against the Haitians' guerrilla-style warfare. The French did eventually capture rebel leader Toussaint Louverture. He died in a French prison. But the revolution he started ultimately succeeded, with Haiti gaining independence from France in 1804. Years later, Napoleon would claim that his handling of the Haitian Revolution was his biggest mistake as a governor. He said, quote, I ought to have treated with the black leaders as I would have done with the authorities in a province. But while Napoleon was losing territory in the Caribbean, he was gaining it in continental Europe. In 1801, France and Austria finally signed a peace treaty. Napoleon regained control over Holland, Belgium, and parts of northern Italy. Then, at the end of March 1802, France and Britain signed the Treaty of Amiens. The War of the Second Coalition was now over. Amiens was a major victory for Napoleon. France lost no territory, while Britain lost control of various lands in Europe, as well as Malta and Egypt. More than anything, the Treaty of Amiens proved to the world that France, and thus Napoleon, was becoming Europe's newest superpower. But the peace didn't last long. A year later, in spring 1803, Napoleon sent expeditions into Egypt and its surrounding area. Additionally, troops were ordered into India, antagonizing the British East India Company. At the same time, he enacted a series of strict tariffs in order to rejuvenate France's economy. In the meantime, the British refused to evacuate Holland, Egypt, and Malta as promised. The flimsy Treaty of Amiens wasn't enough to stop the old tensions from rising again. And on May 18, 1803, Britain declared war on France again. 
Within a few years, Britain was joined by another coalition of European nations. However, unlike previous wars, they weren't facing the French Republic. They were facing an empire. Coming up, Napoleon crowns himself emperor and reshapes Europe. Hi, I'm Christine Schieffer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast and that's what we drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism and more and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches, who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now back to the story. When Britain declared war on May 18, 1803, 33-year-old First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte didn't want to lead the fight. Instead, he hoped to focus on rebuilding the French economy and passing his legal code. But he also knew there was no better place to achieve greatness than on the battlefield. Napoleon told one of his generals that a war would allow him to, quote, acquire the great glory which hands down the memory of men beyond the lapse of centuries. Napoleon was still obsessed with his legacy and saw himself as a modern Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, or Emperor Charlemagne. But as he prepared for war, he also encountered the threat all great conquerors faced, assassination. By now, Napoleon was used to attempts on his life, especially by exiled royalists or radical Jacobins. He generally shrugged them off. But in August 1803, a group of British intelligence officers snuck into France with the intention of assassinating Napoleon. Unfortunately for them, Napoleon had installed a powerful intelligence gathering service. By the end of February, Napoleon's secret police rounded up most of the conspirators, including several French turncoats. One of them revealed that Britain had also turned Louis de Bourbon-Condé, the Duc d'Anguillon. He was technically French royalty, but Napoleon had his men kidnap the Bourbon Duke and put him on trial. There was no evidence that could connect d'Anguillon to the assassination plot. All Napoleon knew was that Dangyon represented the British and the former French monarchy. So, on March 21, 1804, Dangyon was convicted and executed. But Napoleon was still unnerved by the British plot, especially since they had the support of royalty. He came to the twisted conclusion that the only way to save his country and himself from royalist counter-revolutionaries was to become a royal himself. In the days following Dongyan's execution, Napoleon planted the seeds for a Bonaparte monarchy. 
However, instead of king, his allies suggested the title of emperor. This way, he wouldn't conjure up images of the Bourbons. The idea didn't take long to gather support. The other consuls and his generals approved of the plan. And when it was put forth toward the people, over 3.5 million French people voted in favor. On May 18, 1804, 34-year-old Napoleon Bonaparte became emperor. Napoleon was named Emperor of the French to send the message that his empire wasn't based on territory, but on the people he ruled, and that all French people were on equal footing. On December 2nd, Napoleon was crowned at Notre Dame Cathedral. Always seeking to emulate rulers of the past, Napoleon had the Pope personally crown him in an ode to Charlemagne, the French king turned first Holy Roman Emperor. Unsurprisingly, these theatrics antagonized Napoleon's enemies, who that month formed a third coalition against him. The main belligerents were Britain, the Holy Roman Empire, and Russia. Russian Tsar Alexander I had come to see Napoleon as a tyrant who needed to be stopped. Meanwhile, Francis II, who ruled over both the Holy Roman Empire and Austria, joined the coalition after Napoleon proceeded to crown himself King of Italy. The Holy Roman Empire shared a border with Northern Italy, and for Francis, it was too close for comfort. When word reached Napoleon that the Austrians had joined the coalition in late August 1805, it changed everything. Initially, his plan was to invade Britain. He'd even stationed men near the English Channel. But with Austria and Russia joining the coalition, he decided he needed to punish them first. The British invasion would have to go on hold. In September 1805, the Austrian army took the South German town of Ulm and decided to wait for the Russians to reinforce them. Despite having 170,000 men, Napoleon's army was able to move with speed and efficiency. They engulfed Ulm and forced over 20,000 Austrian soldiers to surrender on October 20th, 1805. A few weeks later, Napoleon marched into Vienna, where his victory was marred by a recent piece of terrible news. The French Navy had been decimated by the coalition at the Battle of Trafalgar. The destruction of the French fleet drastically affected maritime trade and permanently shelved Napoleon's dream of an invasion of Britain. Still, though, even if the war was going poorly at sea, Napoleon continued to prove himself a master at land-based combat. This was never more evident than at the Battle of Austerlitz. On December 2nd, 1805, the anniversary of his coronation, Napoleon took on both the Austrians and the Russians. In a stroke of genius, he tricked them into believing his right flank was weak. Once they took the bait, he launched a vicious surprise attack. When the battle ended, roughly 16,000 Russian and Austrian soldiers were dead and another 20,000 were captured. 
Napoleon lost fewer than 1,300 men. The Battle of Austerlitz effectively ended the War of the Third Coalition. Before the year was out, Emperor Francis II signed the Treaty of Pressburg, exiting the coalition. But the Treaty of Pressburg did more than just end the war. It also allowed Napoleon to reshape the Central European map. The treaty helped lead to the dissolution of the 1,000-year-old Holy Roman Empire. Within two years at Napoleon's behest, the German region would be reorganized into the Confederation of the Rhine and became aligned with the French Empire. For Napoleon, all this success felt like the perfect backdrop for the next step of legitimizing his rule as a dynasty. Historically, families like the Habsburgs, Romanovs, and Bourbons all intermarried to maintain their lineages. That meant royal families took generations to build. Napoleon didn't want to wait that long, especially because he still didn't have an heir of his own. So he decided to use family members instead and simply install them directly into so-called royal positions. He even named his older brother Joseph King of Naples. Meanwhile, Prussia began to fear that Napoleon's imperial ambitions would crush them. Additionally, Russia was upset that Napoleon stoked conflicts between Europe and the Ottoman Empire, putting Russia in the middle. So together, the two nations formed another coalition to take down Napoleon. Once again, Napoleon was back at war, fighting to maintain his dominance. The War of the Fourth Coalition began on October 7, 1806, and lasted nine months. And if Napoleon was demonstrating his dominance, he did so with aplomb. He steamrolled through Prussia and captured Berlin. The Russians proved to be more resilient. However, Napoleon's army did enough damage at the Battle of Eylau and the subsequent Battle of Friedland to inspire them to seek peace. In June 1807, Napoleon and Tsar Alexander I met for the first time in the Russian town of Tilsit, today known as Sovietsk. Napoleon was immediately impressed by Alexander, calling him, quote, a very handsome and good young emperor who has more intelligence than one thinks. Perhaps because of this positive impression, Napoleon showed kindness to the defeated Alexander, taking only a bit of territory in Greece. Prussia, on the other hand, received Napoleon's wrath. He demanded about half of the kingdom's territory, which became known as Westphalia and the Duchy of Warsaw. By July 1807, 37-year-old Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte had reshaped much of Europe. France was the most powerful nation on the continent. But Napoleon still wasn't finished building his empire. There was still one nation separating him from total European domination, his old adversary, Britain. Napoleon's destiny as the greatest conqueror in history was just one step away. And that last step would be his downfall. Coming up, Napoleon finds trouble. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now back to the story. By July of 1807, 37-year-old Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte was the most powerful man in Europe. He had defeated powerful enemies and broken up centuries-old empires and kingdoms. More importantly, he had turned a powerful enemy, Russia, into an ally. All that was left was his mortal enemy, Britain. But Napoleon knew what a powerful rival Britain was. The island nation had destroyed France's navy just a few years earlier, after all. So instead of taking Britain head-on, Napoleon decided to go after an important British ally, Portugal. Portugal had been flouting Napoleon's economic sanctions against the British, known as the Continental System. The system was meant to stop all of Europe from trading with its island neighbor. Portugal's resistance gave Napoleon the perfect excuse to go on the military offensive. So in October 1807, Napoleon sent General Jean Andoche Junot and an army of 25,000 to beat Portugal into submission. However, what should have been an easy conquest became a political quagmire involving France's ally, Spain. Napoleon wanted Spain to help him keep Portugal in check. Unfortunately, the Spanish royal family, as described by Philip Dwyer, was, quote, possibly the most dysfunctional of all the dysfunctional royal families in Europe. Realizing they couldn't be trusted, Napoleon decided to overthrow the Spanish monarchy. In January of 1808, he dispatched 100,000 men, led by his brother-in-law, Joachim Murat, and forced the Spanish king to abdicate. In his place, Napoleon installed his brother, Joseph, as the new king of Spain. The people of Spain weren't too thrilled to be ruled by a Frenchman, so they revolted. Throughout the summer, French forces fought against the Spanish army. Capitalizing on the chaos, the British carried out victorious battles across Portugal and successfully forced the French out by the end of August. Frustrated at the incompetence of his men, Napoleon went to the Iberian Peninsula to restore order himself. In November, he and his Grand Army marched into Spain and subdued their main forces. By the end of 1808, Joseph Bonaparte 
ruled over Spain again. At least most of it. Throughout the countryside, rebels engaged in a guerrilla war against the French. Napoleon referred to the conflict as the Spanish Ulcer. These skirmishes ultimately lasted for the rest of Napoleon's reign. Each year, he sent more men to Spain to fight the guerrillas. At one point, there were over 400,000 French troops on the Iberian Peninsula. Napoleon even went to Spain himself to put down the rebels until he learned of yet another enemy conspiring to defeat him. Throughout 1808, the Austrians were secretly mobilizing an army funded by Britain with the intention of invading the German state of Bavaria, Poland, and Italy. When Napoleon heard of Austria's mobilization in January 1809, he quickly left Spain, returned to Paris, and began adding more recruits to his army. Austria officially declared war on the French on April 3, 1809. A few days later, they invaded Bavaria and kicked off the War of the Fifth Coalition. The Fifth Coalition War was notable for one extraordinary moment. At the two-day Battle of Aspern-Essling, Napoleon was defeated for the first time in 10 years. Not since the Siege of Acre in 1799 had Napoleon been forced to personally retreat from a battlefield. Despite the loss, Napoleon regrouped. Six and a half weeks later, he crushed the Austrians at the Battle of Wagram and forced them to sign an armistice. By October, the war had ended. Finally, Napoleon had a moment to breathe and returned to scheming about his dynasty, which wasn't looking so great. He still had no legitimate heir, while he had mistresses across Europe, some of whom produced illegitimate children, his wife Josephine had never borne a son. So Napoleon decided that he needed a new wife. At the end of November 1809, he announced to Josephine that he was going to annul their marriage. She was 46 years old, six years older than him, and beyond her childbearing years. Despite Josephine's tears and requests to reconsider, their marriage ended in December. For the next empress, Napoleon had his eyes on Tsar Alexander's sister, Grand Duchess Anna Pavlovna. Tsar Alexander was willing to allow 40-year-old Napoleon to marry his teenage sister, but at a price. As part of the marriage deal, Tsar Alexander wanted Napoleon to promise he wouldn't allow Polish independence and to ban the words Poland and Pol. Eventually, Alexander wanted to claim Poland for himself, which would be much easier if it remained a piece of territory rather than a nation. Initially, Napoleon agreed, but within a few weeks, he decided that caving to Alexander's demands looked undignified. As emperor, Napoleon didn't need to acquiesce to anyone. So Napoleon abandoned the Russian courtship and instead, in February 1810, proposed to Marie-Louise, the daughter of Francis II of Austria. The Austrians were more than happy to use the marriage as a means of securing peace after years of war. In the spring, Napoleon and Marie-Louise were married, and a year later, Napoleon II was born. The emperor's dynasty was secure. 
But meanwhile, the botched marriage deal between Napoleon and Tsar Alexander was more than just a minor squabble between friends. It became part of a growing tension between the two most powerful nations on the continent. In Russia, the aristocracy hated the French alliance and made no effort to hide their disdain. Years later, the new ambassador to Paris had been openly antagonistic toward Napoleon, while an advisor of Alexander had been whispering that it was only a matter of time before Napoleon marched into Russia. On top of that, Napoleon's continental system, the trade blockade against Britain, was harming the Russian economy. Napoleon had his own reasons to distrust the Tsar. During the War of the Fifth Coalition, Russia failed to back up France against Austria. Though Russia sent 70,000 troops, according to historian Simon Sebag Montefiore, they were instructed, quote, not to help the French in the slightest. Had these troops arrived on time as promised, Napoleon likely would not have suffered his humiliating retreat at the Battle of Aspern Essling. But the final problem came in December 1810, when Napoleon annexed the Duchy of Oldenburg because its duke had violated the continental system and traded with Britain. But the deposed Duke of Oldenburg was one of Alexander's relatives. For Alexander, this added insult to injury. And finally, he was fed up. He ordered Russian troops moved closer to Polish borders, a sign of aggression against Napoleon. And told an advisor, I will not be the first to draw the sword, but I will be the last to put it back in its sheath. At this point, Napoleon didn't want to go to war with Russia. Throughout 1811, he explicitly expressed the desire to maintain peace with Alexander. However, as Andrew Roberts notes, he was not about to avoid war through concessions that he feared might compromise his empire. Soon, it wasn't a matter of if, but when. And by the summer of 1811, Napoleon decided that he would be the one to strike first and invade Russia. Napoleon truly believed that an invasion would be swift, but he also wanted to make sure his offensive didn't lead to another coalition war. In early 1812, he solidified his alliance with Prussia and Austria. But he didn't get to the Ottoman Empire fast enough. Russia offered the empire territory if they didn't fight alongside Napoleon. Additionally, Alexander convinced Sweden to remain neutral in any conflict. These deals cost Napoleon allies along his northern and southern flanks. But it didn't dissuade him from pursuing his invasion. Now that the fight was imminent, in his mind, conquering Russia was to be his greatest glory yet. On June 24, 1812, Napoleon and his massive invasion force, between 615,000 and 655,000 men, crossed the Niemen River toward Russia. At the time, it was the largest invasion in European history. But neither Napoleon nor the rest of Europe realized that he wasn't marching to Russian conquest. Napoleon was finally marching toward defeat.
Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll examine Napoleon's doomed Russian invasion and his attempt to reclaim his fallen empire. Among the many sources we used, we found Andrew Roberts' Napoleon, extremely useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman, Andrew Messer, and Nora Battelle. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. Werewolves, Witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.